Well, if you were a betting woman or man, what would you bet would penetrate armor steel plate? A 30-06 armor penetrating bullet from the military, a standard 270 Winchester, or a 48 grain varmint bullet from a 220 Swift? I think we have an answer on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We've got some fun questions today, the way it looks. And the first one is about that penetration in steel from those three wildly different cartridges and bullets. But before we get to that, I want to answer a question here from a uh, patron from Patreon. This gentleman asked, uh, Ron, I've learned a lot from you in your recent episodes. You mentioned pressure related to cartridges. I'm interested to know how to use this information as a hand loader. In other words, what value does knowing pressure help us as shooters, hunters, and hobbyist hand loaders? I can see if I were approaching max charge, but I see different max pressure depending on the bullet and the powder selection. Can you expand on this and help me understand how to use this information? Or should I not spend much time worrying about it? Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work, sir, Bill. Well, good question, Bill. Knowing which pressures our hand loads are producing is important because it keeps us from blowing up our rifles. <laughs> but knowing when pressures are too high is always a crapshoot to a degree. So we have to depend on the combination of loading manual recipes plus classic pressure signs. The max pressures are established by SAMI, so all we have to do is stay below them. And the manuals do that, but know this, every barrel, case, primer, and bullet combination changes pressures to a degree. So the manuals will start with a light starting load and then work up. Hand loaders must watch for flattened primers, uh, a stiff bolt lift, ejector marks on the base, etc. Most hand-loading manuals will describe these in detail. Also, these are not absolutely reliable measures, but they're about the best we can do. Now, if you notice a steady progression in muzzle velocities while you work up your loads, you're probably good. But when you start to see minimal increases per grain of powder, you've reached your limit because you get increased pressure without appreciably increasing your velocities when you get too much pressure. So back off. You can also measure case diameter at the head, at the head and web just ahead of the extractor groove with a micrometer. Increases there will indicate high pressures. If you find yourself having to trim necks every loading or two, that could also indicate high pressure, or it could simply be too much dragging of the expander ball in a rough neck. Now, black carbon around the primer pocket and or loose primers, well, that absolutely indicates excessive pressures. Well, there are a lot of little things like this to watch for, but these are the basics. Uh, so not knowing the absolute chamber pressure, well, we're getting it's why it's advised to follow the recipes in the manuals and don't try to set speed records. That's the advice I provided to our patron, Bill. And I hope he still has all of his fingers <laughs> and isn't pushing the envelope. You know, hand loading really is quite safe. I've been doing it since I was a teenager. And 
if you're not uh, just listening and watching, I'm holding up 10 fingers <laughs> and I have both eyes yet. So everything's still intact. I have not had an, a problem with my hand loads other than one time I stuck the wrong cartridge in the rifle, but that could have been done <laughs> with factory loads as well. The point is, as long as we're careful, um, slow and methodical and thinking all the time, we are, of course, working with tools that can really cause problems, kind of like a uh, power saw of some kind, any sort of power working with electricity. I mean, there are a lot of ways we can screw up. So you have to know what you're doing, take your time and pay attention. But golly, hand loading has been going on for so long. Well, really, when you think about it, hand loading has been going along pretty much as for as long as firearms have been around. Because what did we do with muzzle loaders? We hand loaded them. We poured the powder in, we seated the bullet on it, we put on the cap where we primed the pan, and that's hand loading. So all you're doing with cartridges, of course, is preparing a simple cartridge that holds everything so it's a lot more convenient than carrying loose powder around. Just be careful with all of it and you should be just fine. Now, I see they gave me a page with a few things on it. Here's something from Todd who says, hey, why do you call it a 5.56? Isn't it a point Aha, <laughs> good question, Todd. And I can see where you'd be confused. What we're up against here are the two different systems of measurement. The empirical system, which is the good old thousandths of an inch, you know, the old system of measurement that we're trying to get away from to go metric. The 5.56 millimeter is a metric designation of the bullet diameter, whereas the 0.223, that would be the imperial system. So that's why we call it a 5.56, because dimensionally it is 5.56 millimeters, not in inches. All right. This is from Chris. In P.O. Ackley's book, Handload for Shooters and Reloaders, there's a picture of a piece of half inch armor plate from a half-track vehicle, World War II. This is it, boys. <laughs> there were two holes in that plate from the 48-grain factory ammo from the 220 Swift. The, two, the 270 and the armor-piercing 30-06 failed to do more than dent the steel. It's a cool picture. <laughs> yeah, it sure is, Chris. I've seen it before many times in that book, and it is really an eye-opener. Now, why would a, a frangible little 48-grain, thinly-jacketed, lead-core bullet from a 220 Swift that was probably going close, close to 4,000 feet per second, why would that penetrate steel when the actual 30-06 supposedly armor-penetrating bullet didn't? I don't exactly know if anyone out there knows the answer to this. It has been replicated many times. This was not just a one-off. So I don't know exactly why it happens, but they sure can do it. So we will look for some answers from some of you folks out there. I imagine someone with a lot of military experience might have that answer for us. Looking forward to hearing it. Now, here is uh, someone looking for something about 22 long rifles. Randall, a 22 long rifle. What action would you choose? A lever action? A bolt action? An automatic? I was thinking of a bolt action in a survival scenario because of its simplicity, but I do like a lever action. All right. Now, between a lever action, a bolt action, and an automatic, I say yes. Get one of each and add a pump in there if you can find it. <laughs> However, I know what you're driving at here. 
for your one chance survival rifle, you've got nothing else. I think you're right. Go with the bolt action. It's more dependable. I think it can be more easily repaired. Uh, and it shouldn't really need to be repaired. Just make sure you've got one that's really functional. I have a couple of uh, Kimbers, the original Kimber, um, and then the American, the second version with the controlled round feet. And they're both delightfully accurate and just consistent. I've had them for years and years, and they just keep on going. But, you know, I, I can't say that I've ever had trouble with my Ruger 1022s. They've always been pretty darn consistent. A lot of the relatively inexpensive 22s, whether they're automatics or, or uh, pumps, bolt actions, whatever, seem to have issues. But I think that has more to do with the low cost. They're just not built for rugged long-term use. So I would invest in, in a bolt action that's got a reputation for quality. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan, for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Okay. Now, here's just a little quick one from someone called Bob who's read uh, or saw my, my video on the 22 as a survival rifle, and he said, I would humbly submit that the 22 Winchester Magnum is superior. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ballistically, it is, of course. The 22 Win Mag is probably pretty good for a dead-on hold out to about 100, 125 yards, and it delivers more energy at closer ranges and such. But I don't think it's a better choice for a survival tool because ammunition is a little harder to find, and when the stuff hits the fan, it'll be even harder to find. There's just a lot more 22 long rifle ammo out there. And it's... Uh, it's a little louder, so if you're trying to sneak around to do some what we would have called poaching, but when everything's a kind of a big disaster and you need meat, you're going to shoot it. So uh, I think there's a little advantage there as well. It's just a lot, I don't know, you can carry a lot more ammo. Well, probably not a lot. The 22 Magnum is quite a bit longer than a 22 long rifle, but 
that's not a huge difference. But one of the reasons I like the 22 rimfires for survival is that you can carry so much ammunition, whether it's in a pack on your back or just filling up your pockets or storing a whole bunch of them in your little secret cave. <laughs> you know how we all are about these things. Not a lot of us actually go through with it, but we often think about and dream about what would happen if maybe I should have some way of surviving on my own. And whether that's moving into the wilderness, <laughs> living off the land, or having a little hideout cave somewhere with your basic survival tools handy, all that sort of stuff. You got to think about that. All right, let's see now. We've got a bunch of questions here. All right, see what the team came up with this time. This one looks like it comes out of California. Hmm, Brian, and he seems to know me. He said, I enjoyed meeting you and your wife at the Western Hunt Expo recently. Ah, yes, that would have been down in Salt Lake City probably last February. That's always a fun show. I hope you folks enjoyed the show as much as I did. Yeah, well, I don't know how much you enjoyed it, but we sure had a good time. My question is about reloading. I am just starting to reload my own ammunition with the goal of developing accurate loads for hunting big game. As I acquire the various tools, I'm at a crossroads about purchasing an annealer. Will the cost and time of annealing brass justify a discernible accuracy difference with hunting shots taken out to a maximum of 600 yards or less. I shoot a 280 AI with mainly Barnes LRX and TTSX bullets. All right, that's a good question. Uh, really, Brian, the annealer is not going to contribute much, if anything, to your accuracy. What it does is it increases the lifetime of your brass by not work hardening it. So when you anneal, heat, and then cool or quench, the uh, brass just up at the neck and shoulder. You keep it malleable so that it doesn't work harden when you're resizing it and such. And that is the value of it. So exactly how many more loads would you get out of a single case? Well, obviously it depends on how hot your loads are and all the rest of that. But, you know, figure at least three, perhaps as many as six more. Um, I don't do annealing myself thinking that it's probably just uh, as easy and or cost effective to get new brass and, and just keep going that way. And But part of the reason is I shoot so many different cartridges and rifles. I really don't need one to keep cranking it out. Um, some of my more often loaded and fired would say be a 22250, 22250 Ackley, some kind of a, a lighter round that I shoot a lot of. And I have seen my cases go to pot fairly quickly. A six millimeter, I remember, would split the necks. They would get work hardened and split. The rest of the case would have been good for some more loadings, but the uh, neck split. So it is something to consider. But I wouldn't jump into it until you've got a lot more reloading experience under your belt. All right, from Michigan comes Todd. I'm a 57-year-old avid shooter, hunter, and gun enthusiast. Just today, I bought a gun I've been looking for a very long time. It's a Savage 99 in 300 Savage, and it's in excellent condition. That is cool. I've kind of been looking for one of those myself. I'm not real crazy about the feel of the grip on that Savage. It's a little bit heavy and thick around the grip for me, but gosh, it's, it's just such a famous lever action. And it had so many cool features coming out way back in 1899. It was well ahead of its time because it had a vertical stack magazine. Not only that, but it was a circular one. 
rotating magazine, like the 1022 Ruger. And it had a counter on the side that you could see how many rounds were still in it. It was really pretty cool. And of course, you could shoot those sharply tipped bullets. And that is what inspired the 308 Winchester when the military started looking for a replacement for the 30 6 in the 1940s. Uh, they went right to the 300 Savage, thinking it came awfully close to the performance of the 30 6 in a shorter and lighter cartridge. And that's what they were looking for. But then they decided uh, the neck was a little bit short on it, and they played around and came up with a 308. But the two are awfully close. So, is there a safe way to use a 308 Winchester case for the 300 Savage? I imagine there is. It would take resizing. Um, I don't know how many steps would be required. Now, the 308 is a little bit longer from base to shoulder. The neck is a little bit longer, so you'd have to be pushing the shoulder back. You would change it from the 20 degrees on the 308 to 30 degrees on the Savage. What else about it? And overall length, I think, is about the same, but the the neck length, the length of the case itself, I think is a little bit longer in the 308, but you can trim that down. So I think sizing, guys, I don't know if it would take two steps, but go to your die manufacturers, whether it's Redding or RCBS or Hornady or whoever, um, and see if they have a kit, one or two dies that would enable you to make this transition. That sounds to me like it's a pretty reasonable option. All right, Nick from Arizona, something about cartridges here. Ron, I'm interested in getting into hunting and target shooting. Oh, good. Well, welcome. I think you're going to enjoy it. My gun safe, unfortunately, only has room for one more rifle. Well, what do you have for rifles already if you're just getting into hunting and target shooting? Must be self-defense, huh? Well, I'm looking for a good all-round cartridge to check out as many boxes as possible in a hunting gun, though. So, Currently, I'm leaning towards the venerable 30-06 for its versatility. That's always a good choice. But I am open to suggestions. What cartridges would you suggest? Ah, Nick, you know, you're right on with that 30-06. But let's see, you mentioned target shooting too. And if you're going hunting and target shooting with one, I'm going to have to defer to my <laughs> often discredited 308 Winchester. The 308 Winchester really is your better option for target shooting. Not so much because of this supposed inherent accuracy of the cartridge as the fact that more 308 Winchester cartridges are produced for target shooting accuracy. They've got more target bullet options and they load them a little more precisely. And the same goes with rifles chambered for it. 30-odd sixes are generally just your average hunting rifle. The tolerance is maybe a little bit loose in the chamber. They just don't think of making a target grade chambered 30 6 rifle. So I think you're going to be all right with a 308. You'll be spitting your bullets maybe 150, maybe 150 feet per second more slowly out of a 308. If you're hand loading and getting your pressure signs and everything up to snuff, just figure 100 feet per second less velocity, which is no big deal. No elk's going to say, oh boy, too bad you used a 308 instead of a .30-06 and walk away. <laughs> it's going to do just fine for game. Yeah, that's what I recommend, believe it or not, everybody who thinks I hate the 308. <laughs> ah, the 308, so easy to hate. Okay, Vance from Grand Prairie, Alberta and Canada. Good country up there. I've hunted there several times. I currently use a three. Well, there we are, three hundred eight Winchester. 
I currently use a 308 Winchester for hunting, and I recently acquired a 9.3 by 62 Mauser. A quick aside here, Vance. Talking about the 308, I just remembered. The 308 Winchester was the cartridge used by that gentleman up in Saskatchewan who shot the world record whitetail. There you go. Continuing with Vance, I often find myself contemplating purchasing another rifle just because I don't have a magnum caliber. I've always end up talking myself out of it as I have these two rifles that I think cover all my needs for deer, elk, moose, and black bear. But what is your opinion on this? Is a magnum really needed or do you think I have more than adequate firepower for hunting within ethical hunting distances, which I consider to be 400 yards or less? Vance, you're done. <laughs> yes, you have all you need for 400 yards or less. There's no need for a magnum. Now, you might want a magnum and you might have fun with a magnum, but you certainly don't need it. And once again, here is the value of a magnum. You get a little more maximum point blank range reach. Where your regular cartridge, the bullet might drop below your target at, say, 300 yards. With a magnum in the same caliber, you might be able to reach another 30 to 50 yards before the bullet falls under your target. Now, if you have a laser rangefinder and you know the exact distance to your target, shouldn't be a problem because you just compensate either by dialing your turrets or holding high or using a sub-reticle in your scope, and you'll just be fine. So, yeah, I would say 400 yards or less. All of my traditional hunting rifles I have set up for maximum point-blank ranges, and most of them in the 270 class, I can hold dead on to about 300 yards, high shoulder at 350, and at 400, I just need to have a few inches over the animal's back because my drop's going to be somewhere between 16 and at most 20 inches, generally 18. And if you figure a deer's chest is about 18 inches top to bottom, and then the target vital zone inside is about 10, you're just going to drop that bullet 18 inches with your high like that right into the heart over the top of the heart. And it's worked for me just beautifully for decades. So I think you're set. But hey, if you want to get yourself a seven mag of some kind, I would definitely support you in that. They are sure fun. All right, Jacob from Michigan looks like he wants to go bear hunting. Hello, I am looking at a bear hunt on Kodiak Island, and I'm wondering what a good lightweight scope would be. Looking to put it on a 308 or a 270. Best regards, Jacob. Well, Jacob, a lot of folks here are going to be saying before you go to that lightweight scope, you might want to look at a little heavier cartridge bullet combination for your big Kodiak bear. I mean, these things are big and huge, and I don't know. Now, plenty of them have been taken with good bullets out of a 270 and a 308. And my friend Phil Shoemaker, a master guide up on the peninsula of Alaska, claims that he does not see any faster kills on big brown bears with the big magnums versus a 30 on six. Good bullet in the right place pretty much gets the same response. But there are the guys concerned about, what if the bear comes after me faster than I go after the bear? <laughs> in other words, we're talking about a so-called stopping bullet performance. And you do get a little more punch out of a heavier bullet. Whether or not that stops a bear, I sincerely doubt it because there have just been too many stories over the years of guides and clients thumping, charging bears with all kinds of big, heavy bullets, so-called stopping cartridges like 375 H&H, 416s of various kinds, 458s, and the bear just keeps coming. And that's because you have to break down what drives it. The major uh, skeletal support 
or the central nervous system. Because lung shot, heart shot, you know how long animals can live. And it doesn't take but a split second or so for a grizzly or a brown bear to cover some ground and get to you and uh, rip you a new one while he is expiring. So you might want to go with something a little better. However, back to your scope. I hardly recommend the 2.8 to 8 by 36 millimeter Leupold VX3. I have used these scopes for all kinds of stuff. And I love them for their compact size, long eye relief, like four and a half inches, I think is what the eye relief on this is. So you don't have any threat of getting a scope ding. And they just seem to be rugged and reliable. I have never had one go bad on me. So give that one a look. It might not match up with some of the brightest and bestest optically in the business, but it's more than bright and optically sharp enough for hunting use. My goodness, I've taken game out to 400, 450 yards using that scope. And it's quite versatile from two and a half power. You're going to have no problem at close range on a big bear. Um, and then 8X, if you need to reach out there, I've gone as far as 400 yards at 8X. So I think you're going to like that scope. Now, there may be some others out there just as good. I hear a lot of good things about the rugged durability of some burst scopes, but I don't work with them all that often. I just know that this this little loophole is compact. As I said, everything else about it's great. And it only weighs about 12 ounces. That's a lightweight scope. Okay, let's see what Luke from Arkansas has got. Here he wants to know about dog deflection. Do you have any information on bullet deflection, especially tall grass and small twigs, say a half inch or less? I'm shooting a six millimeter Remington, 80 grain and 100 grain. Yeah, that is worth considering. I hear a lot of times from guys you say, boy, I missed my shot, but then I found out there was a blade of grass in front and that deflected my bullet. I never bought that. A blade of grass, no. Even four or five blades of grass, no. But at some point, there will be enough blades of grass between you and that target that you might start to deflect that bullet. Twigs, uh, yeah, that doesn't take too much for a sapling or a twig to nick the side of that bullet and send it off in a new direction. It just diverts it from its original path. And yeah, yeah, I think you're on the right track. Half inch, definitely. I have seen it in action uh, once on a water buffalo hunt in Australia. The fella that made the shot killed the buffalo just like that, but he hit him in the neck when he was aiming behind his shoulder. <laughs> so we got to scratching our heads over that one, went back to from where he had shot and followed the line of travel. And sure enough, there was a limb almost falling over with about half of it, with a little half moon cut out of it from his bullet. He had hit that and deflected that bullet. Gosh, from a buffalo, you're looking close to three feet of deflection. And now you need to consider how far that deflection device is from the animal and your bullet. If it's right in front of your gun or fairly close and the animal is 50 yards beyond it or 100 yards beyond it, that makes a big difference. A little bit of deflection initially ends up to make a huge deflection downrange. So you do need to pay attention to the stuff that's in close. Bushes that are right in front of the animal aren't nearly as much of a problem. I have over the years shot through several of those. It would be fairly light bushes where you might hit a small limb or something, but immediately behind it is the animal. And at worst, I've had the bullets keyhole, but still hit the vitals in a thing like that. It's a judgment call. So yeah, always safest to not have any distractions in the way, but 
boy, I, I have never let um, a small piece of grass dissuade me from making a shot on a good animal. Now, also consider your bullet because some light varmint bullets um, are likely to break up a little more easily when they hit something. Years ago, I did a test with the 22-250, and I think it was a, a 40 grain hollow point frangible varmint bullet. And I shot through a bunch of branches in a plum thicket in South Dakota. It, it put a target on the backside. And I was, yeah, I couldn't predict how many branches I was going to hit. You know, it was just enough of them that I knew it was going to hit that bullet and deflect it. The idea was, is it going to tear it apart? I would then see either no holes in the paper or flex instead of one hole. Every shot, and I don't remember how many it took, maybe six, but every one of them got through. Some of them were a little bit sideways, but none of them turned into that broken up bullet that you hear so much about. But I think it is a possibility, so you want to consider that. But obviously, there's no scientific absolute answer on this one. It's not like gravity. <laughs> All right, Dylan from Oklahoma. Hello, Ron. I'm a big fan. In fact, you inspired me last year to go hunting for the first time. Well, great. I'm glad I was able to do that, Dylan. Welcome to the club. We need hunters, obviously, in order to defend hunting and wildlife especially. As I've preached on many a time, and you probably already know it, but don't forget, we hunters are funding wildlife conservation. Not only that, but we are the ones raising the alarm bells, save habitat. You've got to save our wetlands, our forests, our grasslands. Most people, eh, they don't know what's going on out there because they're too busy with their lives and they don't really care about hunting and the wildlife. So welcome to the club. We need your support. Now, let's see. You went for the first time. Even though I came back empty-handed, I had an incredible time and I can't wait to go again this year. All right. That's the spirit. My question is about the new 6.8 Western. Okay, the 6.8 Western. Mm -hmm. Let's see what else he has to say about it. I'm looking for a new hunting rifle, primarily for whitetail, possibly elk. I initially had my heart set for the rifle chambered in 270 Winchester. Not a bad option, my friend. However, the 6.8 Western has really caught my eye. Everyone always talks about the cartridge's long-range capabilities and applications. So my question is, will the 6.8 Western be too much for whitetail, possibly at closer ranges, so say around 150 yards? Thanks so much for all your time and knowledge. Okay, Dylan. Now, no, there's, as so many of my friends say, there's no such thing as too dead. <laughs> but then again, others are saying, you know, you don't want to tear up too much meat with a big bullet or a high velocity bullet and blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff is highly variable. The base question here is the 6.8 Western going to tear up your deer or be too much for it at closer ranges? No, absolutely not. It's not doing a heck of a lot more that the 270 Winchester doesn't already do. Um, except for it gives you the the advantage of that fast twist barrel so you can stabilize those 160 to 175 grain bullets. And that gives you better long range potential. Now, how far do you really need to shoot? I always say 400 yards is a long shot and probably as far as most good shooters, practice trained shooters should be reaching. But there are folks who really spend their time and I think it's legit to stretch it to 500, perhaps 600 yards. After that, it's not so much whether or not you and your rifle and bullet are accurate. It's the changing environmental conditions that can screw up your shot. And that is generally the wind. The wind's just hard to call. You just don't know what that wind is doing out there. It's more of an art reading wind than it is a science. And I'm more than happy for you to practice your art 
on steel targets, not on game. So figure to shoot at most 500 yards. If you really, really work at it, you might stretch it to six and then make your judgment from there. The 270 Winchester is more than capable of reaching 500 yards and being remarkably accurate and delivering more than enough power and punch and all the rest of it with either the 130, 140, or 150 grain bullets. I really wouldn't worry about that. I think it comes down more to, do you really want to play around with the newest, latest, and greatest, which is wonderful in the 6.8 Western? And do you really want to be shooting those bigger, heavier bullets? You know, some people just like a heavier bullet for the added penetration potential. And sometimes for the added energy, I don't see any deer shrugging off a 270 with the lightest weight bullet. You don't need a heck of a lot of energy. Um, but you do have options with the 6.8. And not only will you be able to buy your 160 to 170, 175 grain bullets in it, um, but I would imagine someday they'll go with 150 grain bullets or maybe even 130. And as a hand loader, of course, you can load those and really be driving them fast. So you've got a lot of options there. I think it comes down to whether or not you like the classic or the modern and a short action versus a long action. You're going to have a standard length action in your 30-06, a short action in the 6.8 Western. But neither one of them is too much for whitetail. Um, and they're both more than enough for responsible range hunting. And they'll both work for elk too, just fine. So either one, uh, 270 Winchester or 6.8 is going to do the job. Neither one's too big and they'll both work just fine for elk with the right bullets as well. Regardless which one you get, wishing you the best of luck with it. Hope it works out well for you. Well, that looks like all of the questions for today, folks. I want to thank you, as usual, for joining us here on Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. Keep sending in those questions. If you want to send a question, you can go to ronspomeroutdoors.com website, and right up on the top bar, it'll have uh, comments. Click on that, and it'll give you a form to fill out to send in your comment. Now, if anybody has good information on that steel plate and that 220 swift punching through it, we'd sure like more details on that. Why did that happen? Send that information in and We'll read it on the air and we'll leave your name out of it if you don't want to be exposed. <laughs> All right. So everybody, Chris and Randall and Bob and Dylan and Luke and Jacob and Vance and Nick and Todd and Brian. I don't think we had anyone from Australia this time, but we always enjoy all of your comments. Thanks for writing in. We'll see you next time on Honest Shoot Straight.